Dr. Steph, if I live in any Western country and I am given the choice of building a masjid or building a school, definitely I will build a school because we can pray in the school. But a, school, a masjid is not fit for education. So it must be a priority because we don't sacrifice the education of our children because that is also part of their support for our Muslim civilization and this is their future career. And at the same time, we have for their akhirah to preserve their identity and their language and so on. So don't sacrifice it. And that being said, I would definitely ask every Muslim community to start a school. And those who have schools, I would advise that they compete with the best of schools. And by the way, this is what we do in our schools. I, I, I don't start regular schools. I don't start medium level schools. I, what I do is that in every country I go in, my goal is to compete with the highest American European uh, education in that country. So that's that's my advice, and that is uh, uh, that is the priority that we should do, inshallah. Islamic civilization. The founder of that was Abu Ja'far al-Mansur. Abu Ja'far al-Mansur is the one who started Darul Hikmah, which is the first Islamic university uh, in the whole world. Many people don't know this, that Abu Ja'far al-Mansur himself was one of the major scholars of Islam. He was in the level of the four Imams. And he lived at the same time with Al-Imam Malik, one of the, uh, uh, the founder of the, one of the four main schools of the Sunnis. So <clears throat> Imam Malik was the, the major scholar. He was the number one scholar in the whole world. Abu Ja'far al-Mansur was the number two. So he was to that level. So when he made Hajj, he met with Imam Malik in Medina because Imam Malik lived in Medina. So they, they had a very interesting discussion that would answer your question, what is moderate Islam? So Abu Ja'far said to Imam Malik, dear Imam, I'm also banned in many countries. I am banned from Saudi Arabia, including to go to Hajj and Umrah. And this is for more than 10 years now. Uh, I'm banned from Emirates and Bahrain and Egypt and Jordan and many others uh, because of my very strong stand against the coup on Egypt. All of, these, uh, all of this happened in 2013 when the coup in Egypt happened and I took a very strong stand against it. So, uh, so this, these are the reasons. So why am I banned? Uh, I'm banned because I am against injustice. Ibn Khaldun was too advanced for his time. For his time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and his ideas are really unique and truly genius. That if you, if the, the more I read Ibn Khaldun, the more I would understand our current situation. So again, 
congratulations on choosing this greatest scholar and uh, his uh, book, the Muqaddimah, is the founding corner of all of his work. So a beautiful work, Barakallah Feek, and excellent choice. Uh, exactly. So where does revival come from? Revival come, comes from ideas and ideology and scholars. That's the start. And then it ends with politics and military, not vice versa. Not vice versa, yeah. So that's how, how we understand it. So that's how important al-muqaddimah and what you're doing is, and especially, especially, I want to really, again, to commend you on, on a great work. Alhamdulillah, we have many Muslim schools and universities and Islamic knowledge, Islamic institutes here. There are very, very few in the West. But saying that, let me say something else. Yeah, I have, alhamdulillah, trained 100,000. And I work a lot with the youth, a lot. And in each year, alhamdulillah, my average is that I train youth from about 30 countries every year. Wallahi, akhi. And my teacher, Dr. Steph, the best among my students are those who come from the West. Before marriage, you can have best friends. But after marriage, your wife or your husband should be your best friend. So I have a, a lot of best friends, but I, I don't share my secrets with them. I, sh I share my secrets only with my wife. Uh, and um, um, again, uh, she's most beloved to me. Welcome to a very exciting program, actually, mashallah. We have Dr. Tarek Asuwaidan with us, uh, an expert in many ways. I was very surprised when I read so many things about you next to the age. We're going to discuss this. You're going to give me a tip. <laughs> but next to uh, the whole issue of the age, I also read a lot of excellent information with regards to your background, your life. And I think we can learn a lot from you. I myself, my pleasure, my pleasure, Dr. Steph. I'm it's an honor to be with you. I, I, I absolutely, both, both sides. And you, you're life. an expert also. I, I, I'm, I'm in, I'm, I'm, I think I'm, I'm in, in your hands. hands. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm a more recent expert. Let's put it that way, inshallah. Um, inshallah, inshallah. We will yeah, talk that's about very, it. very humble of you, Barakallah. <laughs> uh, because I really think that um, people who have a bit knowledge of what's going on around them and have really seen quite something in their life. Although we're both not that old, alhamdulillah. Um, I want to believe... my, my, body, my body is old, my, my heart is young. Doctors, that we, I think we have to meet once in person. We have to meet once in person because honestly, you're lying to me now at this moment. <laughs> I'm 69 years old now. Subhanallah, mashallah. May Allah make it a hundred, a thousand, actually, mashallah. Ya Rabbi, ya Rabbi. May Allah give us long life Ameen. with good deeds. That's the more, most important. Ameen. Ameen, indeed. Ameen. I would like to, for the ones, I'm sure that there are not many, for the ones of the viewers who might not know you or don't know that much about you, I would like to give them a very short idea about you, a brief idea. I mean, you just 
mentioned yeah, already your age. I saw also <laughs> you're a family man, mashallah. This is great. And I think we have we have there's something in common already. You have three sons and three daughters. This is correct. Yes, that's true. <laughs> now let me tell you, I have two sons and five daughters. So oh, mashallah, you mashallah. haven't reached my seventh one, so you're not I there will yet. never reach that. I will never. I, I we already stopped. Alhamdulillah. <laughs> <laughs> Great, mashallah. May Allah give them all reward, and may Allah they will really grant them and yourself, and, of course, too. and yours, yours also, and all the audience. Barakallah. Amen. Jazakallah. The um, that in itself is already quite exciting, I think, and unique. Being a, a, a father of six children, in my case, seven, alhamdulillah, I think that is something that brings you, makes you very mature as a man. It uh, makes me very busy also. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's always the case. I mean, that, that's always the case. Plus, I mean, you're talking about busy. What about you have trained more than 100,000 people? in leadership and management that's <laughs> one of the points yeah you have written more than a hundred books you're calling me humble what about you mashallah i mean <laughs> something that i really think i would like you to tell us more about it i mean i know that you have written books about islamic history you've written books about the khilafah rashidun you have written books about uh, current affairs about management about leadership your background is i think also you got a phd in management and leadership is this correct and uh, petroleum engineering. Oh, petroleum engineering. Okay. Can you tell us a bit more about actually you're busy with management, you're busy with leadership, you're busy with engineering. You know, what exactly? I mean, a very busy man, mashallah, next to the whole big family, of course. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so what is exactly the question? <laughs> the question is tell us how do you manage? How do you manage? How do I manage? Your lifestyle? Your lifestyle? I don't know. <laughs> Listen, Dr. Steph, ask my wife. She manages me. <laughs> this is. I think we have to tell every young man out there that finding the right partner to be able to manage everything with us is one of the most important tasks in life, isn't it? Right. Well, alhamdulillah. I try to live a balanced life. I divide my life into four areas, and <clears throat> try to equally. Uh, be as uh, balanced between the four as much as I can. Uh, the first part is <clears throat> personal, and that is to be with myself and to be with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, uh, the, the time that I spend with myself is, uh, is a lot, alhamdulillah. And that includes my uh, readings. I read a lot, alhamdulillah. I'm a fast reader. I, I've learned uh, speed reading when I was in uh, Pennsylvania State University. Uh, so I read about uh, between 10 to 20 books a month. So that uh, that helped a lot. And uh, uh, my advice to our young audience, especially, is uh, never stop reading. And nothing, nothing will give you knowledge as much as reading books, the internet, the documentaries, etc. They will not give you knowledge. They will give you just general knowledge, but the deep knowledge, there is no other choice but books. And by the way, I, something that I found in life, and uh, that is the books are divided in general into very difficult reading and uh, easy reading. And knowledge you will not find in easy reading. You have to go into the deep reading. And I am very fond, by the way, of Al-Muqaddimah, Muqaddimah ibn Khaldun. And uh, the, you're an expert on that. So later on, I'd like to ask you more about it. Yani. 
especially uh, I have I have general knowledge about it. I'd like to learn from you. The other part of my life is I the part I uh, I spend in my relations, and <clears throat> I try to do specific um, rules in my relations. I do not spend a lot of time with my friends. Um, unless there is something really to do, unless there is something that we can um, together work for the, for the revival of the Ummah or uh, doing projects and so on. Uh, but I don't spend uh, a lot of social time with uh, my friends or my uh, colleagues and so on. I, uh, if there is any time for, for my social life, it will be with my family. So I really spend, alhamdulillah, a good time, about a quarter of my life with my family and specific relations on that. I have thousands of my of relations, of friends. <laughs> but uh, again, yes. Sorry, Sheikh. This is for our viewers, mashallah. Very important. I really think that, especially our young viewers, because you know how when you are young, mashallah, when we were young ones, alhamdulillah, we also thought, I think, we can do anything on this planet. We can That's do, right. we can change the world. And you know how it is. Your blood is still boiling. You you want to do a thousand things at once. So yes. once you calm down a bit, once you become a bit more wiser, um, you calm down and I think then you realize really, and I think it was a good, good, good tips what you just gave us now and good advice to actually yeah. calm down and divide your life, divide it according yes. to how you can manage it, mashallah. That's okay. Another advice on this is, is uh, before marriage, you can have best friends, but after marriage, your wife or your husband should be your best friend. And that's, uh, <laughs> so this, uh, so I, I, I have a, a lot of best friends, but I, I don't share my secrets with them. I, sh I share my secrets only with my wife. Uh, and um, um, again, uh, she's most beloved to me. Uh, but we're uh, 45 years in marriage, alhamdulillah. <laughs> Subhanallah. May, yeah. As I said, may, may they become a hundred or even a thousand. You The third part of my life is I spend producing. So I, all of my projects, all of my re, uh, books, all of my uh, schools, etc. that I did uh, were uh, planned for. And um, uh, uh, all of this that I have done, as I spend uh, spend it in quarter of my life. Uh, by the way, Ali, no matter what we do, is really uh, the maximum you can reach is 35% of your life for production. The, the rest will be divided in the four areas. So personal, including, including leisure time, uh, uh, relations, and mainly family time, uh, production, and uh, this will include writing and uh, doing projects, etc. And the fourth part is sleeping. <laughs> so, uh, of course, we need to rest. I do sleep. <laughs> you have founded several schools and organizations. I've seen. Uh, what is the purpose behind that? I mean, if you look at, I've been in education for the last twenty-five to thirty years, mashallah. Mashallah. And mashallah. I've seen a lot of educational institutes, organizations, schools. I've visited a lot in the whole world. And um, I'm very interested in what you're doing. I think you have five schools in the U.S. and Canada and North America. Is this correct? I, I established five schools in, uh, in several countries. And the first one I did uh, in Oklahoma when I was a student there. And it's still, mashallah, alhamdulillah, going on. It's called Al-Salam School. And then I founded the American Creativity Academy in Kuwait, 
and that's an American Islamic school, which is the first of its kind, uh, which has Western education and at the same time, very deep Islamic knowledge. Uh, the third one I did in Jeddah, and that is an advanced generation school. And then the fourth one is uh, the pioneer school that I did in, in uh, Muscat, uh, Oman. And currently, uh, my last and best, alhamdulillah, of all the schools is Itqan Global Academy. And uh, it is in Qatar, Doha. People can uh, look it up. It's uh, very simple, ega.qa. EGA, Itqan Global Academy, .qa for, stands for Qatar. Uh, so, um, but I don't establish regular schools, Dr. Steph. I establish very advanced schools. Um, uh, with the highest of education. Um, our schools are IB schools, also accredited by uh, the European Union and uh, it's accredited by the, uh, the highest standards in the world, alhamdulillah. And at the same time, uh, very deep in Islamic knowledge. We, uh, out of all the schools in Qatar, which is a lot of schools for that small country, 350 foreign schools, uh, we are number one in keeping the identity of our students. So, uh, the, so I wanted to show that we can do very advanced education and at the same time keep our identity. Uh, Dr. Steph, I, I, I got my high school from uh, Florida, from America. So I, I know the American system so deeply. America and uh, uh, currently my daughter is in Harvard and my other daughter is in Sorbonne. So uh, my son graduated from the uh, University of Toronto. So all of them got very high uh, Western education. They never went to an Arabic school. They never went to an Islamic school. But Alhamdulillah, all of them speak fluent Arabic. And uh, my, this, is a, this might come as a surprise to many. My daughter, Maysoon, who um, is my second uh, child, uh, never studied in any Arabic school. Uh, and at the same time, uh, recently, she got the, the award of the country for pure Arabic poetry. <laughs> Mashallah. <laughs> so I, I wanted to show the whole world and show Muslims that you, uh, unfortunately, many send them, their children to Western schools and then they lose their Islam, they lose their language and so on. And I wanted to show that on a personal level, it can be done. On a whole school level, it can be done. And alhamdulillah, we have done thousands now on that. On the management side, I, I train, I train um, businessmen. I, train, I've, I have trained prime ministers. I have trained ministers in many countries. So I, I do very advanced uh, training. Uh, and most of my training is on um, management, leadership, creativity. Uh, I train on uh, strategic planning, mastering change. So this is... Uh, some of the subjects I train on. Can I uh, go back to the point of, uh, which interests us very much in the West. I mean, I'm living in the UK. Yes. I have lived um, a lot of years uh, in several European countries, such as in Greece. I am originally from Greece. I have lived in the Netherlands. I have lived in for a while also in many other European countries. But of course, I grew up in Germany, the first uh, 20 years of my life I was in Germany and I remember how we have been in the West always discussing in Europe always discussing the issue of having Islamic schools in order to have our children to train them as Muslims to get them to come out with a good Islamic adab 
to have them to understand the Islamic deen as much, the best that they can, to practice it as, as, as much as possible, of course, but also to have a balance, as you just mentioned before, the balanced approach of having a Western education, meaning an education where you get any possible um, any possibilities in order to, 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 to success in this life, in this dunya, as well as in the Akhirah, inshallah. This is the idea mm -hmm. of combining the dunya with the Akhirah. Yes. Um, and you, you're mentioning that, mashallah, and, and I, I really think that it's a very good example what you just mentioned now from your own personal background and life, having had your, your children growing up in, 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 in a Western system, but still keeping their Islamic Arabic identity, mashallah, that's, that's quite important. How do you think mm -hmm. can we manage it here in the West? I mean, in Europe, um, you, you have a connection with Kuwait, of course, you still have a connection with the Arab world, you're very well known in the Arab world, mashallah, especially... But how do you, how is the balance? How easy is it for us? It's a bit more difficult for us, isn't it? It is more difficult, uh, much more difficult. I have lived in the West, Dr. Steph, for 17 years. Um, and uh, the last six years of them, by the way, I never went to the Arab world even one day, not even to my own country, Kuwait. Yani. So, I, so we, we lived in, the, in, in uh, I lived in Oklahoma, I lived in Washington, D.C., and uh, many places in the West. I've been to all of the countries you mentioned. I, I visited a lot of, most of the European countries. So I, I have been in touch with Muslims in the West. I have been in touch with Muslims in Germany, in, uh, in uh, Netherlands, in, uh, not in Greece, but in the UK, etc. So I, I, I know most of the situation there. And yes, it is more, must, much more difficult. Now, if you, if you have to choose between education and uh, Islam, then is the choice is very clear. You choose Islam. Now, why do we have to put people in, in, in such a situation? Why do we have to make them choose one or the other? The, the best idea is to combine them, give them the highest education and Islamic knowledge. Now, if you can keep their identity while sending them to Western schools, then do it, definitely. Uh, this is what I did for several years. Before I started my schools, I sent my children to the Montessori schools and American uh, schools and Canadian schools. Uh, so that they, they have been educated in Western schools. But alhamdulillah, we were able to keep their identity. We taught them Islam, we taught them Arabic at, uh, at, at home. And uh, but it was intensive and it was intensive on them, too. Now, when we started uh, Islamic schools, uh, the first one I started was in Oklahoma and uh, we combined both. Then suddenly Muslims uh, solved the problem. You don't have to sacrifice. And I don't advise that you sacrifice the, the education of, children, of your children. So, yes, it is a must. It is, a, it is an obligation. Let me say something even stronger than that. Dr. Steph, if I live in any Western country and I am given the choice of building a masjid or building a school, definitely I will build a school because we can pray in the school. But a, school, a masjid is not fit for education. So it must be a priority because we don't sacrifice the education of our children because that is also part of their support for our Muslim civilization and is their future career.
and at the same time we have for their akhirah to uh, preserve their uh, identity and their uh, language and so on so don't sacrifice it and th that uh, being said i would definitely ask every muslim community to start a school and those who have schools i would advise that they compete with the best of schools and by the way this is what we do in our schools i i, I don't start regular schools i don't start medium level schools I, what i do is that in every country i go in my goal is to compete with the highest american european uh, education in that country so that's that's my advice and that is uh, uh, that is the priority that we should do inshallah Barakallah, very, very wise words. And mashallah, I mean, this is something that I think after many decades, we as Muslims in Europe, for example, have figured out that this is this is the way forward. Absolutely, what you just said. I mean, I see that in the UK, for example, and as you know yourself, you have been here. Um, I also think that it's going the right direction with regards to schools and education. I believe that um, a mix of both, and not only the Islamic school, for example, and only the masjid next to this. I think together, that is a way forward, mashallah. And I think yes, that's the balanced, exactly. the balanced way to, to move forward, mashallah. Also, I read that you are a managing director of Arisala. Uh, I was. I was. You were? Okay. I was. I'm, I'm no longer uh, the managing. Uh, Arisala is uh, an Islamic channel. Uh, it is a, a satellite channel uh, that was uh, free. And it covers uh, uh, Mo, uh, MENA area, which is the Middle East, uh, North Africa area. But uh, on our website, we reach the whole world. Uh, Alhamdulillah, I, is, I founded it in uh, uh, 2005. And then it was launched in 2006. Uh, I worked with Prince Al-Walid bin Talal for eight years. He is the, uh, he is the uh, owner and the uh, uh, founder of this uh, channel. And then uh, we continued together working on this uh, until 2013. And uh, uh, during that time, alhamdulillah, we advanced to be the number 16 uh, channel out of 1,250 channels in the Arab world. Uh, we were number 16. Just for the, the, the audience comparison, uh, Al Jazeera is number nine. We Masha. were number 16. So, alhamdulillah, that, uh, of course, out of 104 uh, Islamic channels, we were number one. Masha. So, alhamdulillah, we advanced uh, strongly uh, because we built a model for, um, for uh, media, Islamic media, that was not done before. Uh, it was a creative model. Uh, uh, if, if you're interested, I can uh, share with you some of that. Uh, and then in 2013, <coughs> as uh, you all know, the coup in Egypt happened, and uh, I took a very strong stand. I still do against that coup. I think that's a, that's a disaster for the Muslim and the Arab world, and for the for humanity, as a matter of fact, and uh, especially for Egypt. Uh, so I took and still taking a very strong stand against that miserable coup, uh, uh, military coup, and um, uh, Dr. Prince Al Walid has a lot of financial interest in Egypt. So it was his, <laughs> he was caught in the middle between his uh, investments, uh, if he keeps me and uh, 
uh, he will lose uh, the, uh, the support of the military coup. And so he chose his investment, and that's why I left uh, the channel in 2013. I understand, mashallah. I mean, this mm -hmm. is very clear words, very clear things. The political situation, of course, uh, defines, as we have just seen, a lot of our decisions, I think all of us at this moment, I mean, I understand fully the position of Prince Walid. I can fully understand that. Um, Dr. Steph, uh, what is more important than investment? What mm. is more important than positions and careers? What is more important than uh, luxury and finance is our principles. Yes, principles, yeah. dignity. If never, never underestimate the power of, of principles. So, <clears throat> alhamdulillah, at the end of the day, I don't, I, wallahi, Dr. Stefan, yani, alhamdulillah, I, I don't regret a day. <laughs> yani, I don't regret a second of what I did because I believe that was a huge injustice that was done. A lot of killing in the streets and so on. And it is our duty to stand with the oppressed, to stand with the weak, to stand against dictators and uh, dictatorships. And, uh, and with that, I sleep uh, well at night. <laughs> Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Um, you often described as a thinker and that you promote moderate Islam. Now, Many times I've had this kind of discussion. What does that mean, moderate Islam? Could you explain this to us in your in your your own words, actually? Because I have a lot to say about that. But please tell us what do you think is moderate Islam, and what do you mean with that? Well, Barakallah Fiq, this is a very important question. First of all, I'm not a thinker. I am. I only think. <laughs> so to be described as a thinker, I think it says a huge thing that I do not deserve. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> let me let me answer your question in um, uh, in a quote from history. <clears throat> the as you know, the, there was uh, the time of the Prophet sallallahu and then the Khilafah Rashida, and then the Umayyads came. After the Umayyads, the Abbasids came, and um, a huge struggle, and then the, uh, the Abbasids started their dynasty with Abu al-Abbas uh, Safah, and then uh, he didn't rule long. And then the second ruler of the Abbasids uh, is the real founder of the Abbasids uh, dynasty that lasted for uh, centuries. Uh, his name was Abu Ja'far al-Mansur. And he is the founder of Islamic civilization at that period which is called the golden period of Islamic civilization. The founder of that was Abu Ja'far al-Mansur. Abu Ja'far al-Mansur is the one who started Darul Hikmah, which is the first Islamic university uh, in the whole world. Many people don't know this, that Abu Ja'far al-Mansur himself was one of the major scholars of Islam. He was in the level of the four Imams. And he lived at the same time with Al-Imam Malik, one of the, uh, uh, the founder of the, one of the four main schools of the Sunnis. So <clears throat> Imam Malik was uh, the, the major scholar. He was the number one scholar in the whole world. Abu Ja'far al-Mansur was the number two. 
So he was to that level. So when he made Hajj, he met with Imam Malik in Medina because Imam Malik lived in Medina. So they, they had a very interesting discussion that would answer your question, what is moderate Islam? So Abu Ja'far said to Imam Malik, dear Imam, you know that in the matters of knowledge, you and me are the highest. And you know that I can no longer be a scholar because I am busy with being a ruler. So this is keeping me so busy that I cannot keep on with knowledge. So I would advise you to write a book that would simplify knowledge for all scholars and the whole ummah. And with that, Imam Malik wrote his book, the first hadith book, before Bukhari, before Muslim, the first hadith book, Al-Muwatta. Al-Muwatta means to simplify knowledge, to make it easy. He wrote it on the advice of Abu Ja'far al-Mansur. And then he said something very interesting, and it has the exact answer to your question. And he said, Abu Ja'far said to Imam Malik, when you write this book, avoid taking the stiff stance of Abdullah ibn Umar. Abdullah, the son of Umar ibn al-Khattab, was one of the four major scholars of his time. He leaned towards taking the difficult um, uh, the difficult answers, the difficult stands in every situation. And even in matters of fiqh or aqidah and so on, he would take a, the, the most uh, extreme stand, but still within Islam. And Abu Ja'far continues, and he said, and avoid to be too lenient like the stance of Abdullah ibn Abbas. Abdullah ibn al-Abbas, the cousin of the Prophet and the grandfather of Abu Ja'far al-Mansur himself. He's saying to him, don't take the, the stand of my own great-grandfather because he is lenient most of the time. And don't, don't be like Ibn Mas'ud, who sometimes is lenient and sometimes is difficult and does not have a very clear stand on issues. So what is Abu Ja'far al-Mansur saying? He's saying Islam is really like a river. Yes, it has two banks. If you cross them, you're out of Islam. If you, if, if you are too lenient to the level that you have crossed the bank, then you have crossed away from Islam. If you're too extreme, you can also leave Islam. That river is not a line. Many people try to describe Islam as a line. It is not a line. 
Because if we describe Islam as a line, then any dot that is to the right or to the left, you have deviated from Islam. Mm -hmm. But Islam is like a river. You can sometimes be to the right, like Abdullah ibn Umar, but you're still within Islam. And you can be to the left, very lenient, like Abdullah ibn Abbas, but you are still within Islam. So he is telling Imam Malik, be in the middle, be moderate. So that's how I understand being moderate. So a simple so, answer to the question. Very clear. There is nothing called moderate Islam. <laughs> Islam right. is moderate. <laughs> Islam by definition is moderate. But Islam that also within it, you can be extreme to the right or extreme to the left within Islam. And both are Islamic. We do not say Abdullah ibn Umar is not a great scholar or Ibn yeah. Abbas is not a great scholar. But but you can be both. So Imam Malik is described as one and as Shafi'i are described are the most moderate among all the scholars. Ahmed ibn Hanbal is towards the right. He's more difficult. Ibn Abu Hanifa is a little bit towards the left. I, I wrote the books about, uh, I wrote a, a book about each of them detailed. So I know the details of their lives. And uh, Shafi'i and Imam Malik are closer to the middle. So um, uh, what is moderate Islam? Moderate Islam is to be truly Islamic. You do not cross the banks. Otherwise, you're not a Muslim. Yeah. If we have chosen to be Muslims, then let's be Muslims. But those who are leaning towards the left and being lenient, I do not criticize them because they are still Muslims and still, still there are great scholars like Abdullah ibn Abbas who are very lenient. And those who are taking a more difficult stand, then also we would respect them. But I would lean to be in the middle. So this is what is moderate Islam to me. Very clear, Jazakallah Khair, Dr. Daik. That is extremely important because nowadays with what's going on around us, as you know, many youngsters especially, uh, who whose blood is uh, boiling, as I mentioned at the very beginning, <laughs> yeah. take rather a specific stance. And I yeah. applaud everyone who says, listen, the river, as the example, the analogy that you draw, I think, I think it's a very nice analogy. I often mention in lectures and often I speak to my participants and my students and I tell them, listen, Islam is a framework. The framework of Islam can be very big, but it can also be very small. It depends a lot on your knowledge. And yes. the more you know, the bigger is the framework. The broader That's is the river. <laughs> so, mashallah, <laughs> absolutely. The more, uh, Dr. Steph, the more I read, the more I understand Islam, the more I realize how ignorant I am. SubhanAllah. Wallahi, very clearly. And one of the great sayings that I've read is, a saying by Imam Shafi'i, he said, Kullama zada ilmuka, qalla inkaruka. The more you would know, the less you would criticize others. Yeah, <laughs> the wiser you become. The more yes. you know, the less you know, and you, the, hum, the more humble you should become, subhanAllah. I mean, I yes. mean, this is great. Unfortunately, at the same time, 
if we look at your background and your wonderful life, mashallah, we see also that there are certain countries that have banned you from entering several countries. Oh, Allah. What is that? What's Listen. going on? <laughs> a lot of countries. We, uh, my wife says that we are counting those who permit me to enter. <laughs> How many are there? <laughs> Why is that? What is going on? What? What? I mean, listen. Okay. Before you, before you give me your answer, I would like to yes. make clear that every time I travel to see my parents who are living in Germany, every yes. time I travel to see family in the Netherlands, every time yeah. I have to go through a whole issue of at the border. So, um, and who am I? I mean, it is as if, you know, I have, I have said something very bad because we're coming up with facts <laughs> and truth of, of our history. So yeah. I fully understand that there are issues that we cannot do anything against. I mean, that's how it is. Certain countries have yes. decided to yeah. But if maybe you, if, you, if you stand with your idea. principles, then, then you have to take the, 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 the stand that... that will make you an enemy to many others, unfortunately. Right. Okay, let me answer your question. Uh, first of all, alhamdulillah, I have never been in, investigated in my life. I have uh, never been in court, alhamdulillah, never. I, uh, th there, is no, um, uh, there is no sentence of any kind in financial or political or any criminal in any issue, alhamdulillah, in my life. Good. So that being said, why so many countries uh, ban me? Uh, I am banned in the West, in America, Britain, uh, uh, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, many, so many others, because of my stance against Zionism. It is a very strong stand that I have taken and I will continue to take. I am, not, I am not against the Jews. We have lived with the Jews throughout history very peacefully. Yeah. It's a religion. Judaism is not a political uh, country. Judaism is a religion that we would respect. I have written about Judaism in detail. I have written the Encyclopedia of Judaism. So I, I know the details of Judaism. But I also wrote the history of Palestine. And uh, the hist the, my book on the history of Palestine is uh, my uh, number one bestseller out of 125 books now. And it is translated into so many uh, languages. And For because sure. of that stand against Zionism, I am banned in the West. Uh, so it is their decision. <laughs> and uh, again, um, I do not believe that I've lost on anything because you, you cannot ban ideas. You cannot. You cannot stop. There are no borders for ideas. So if if I travel, say to UK and I make a lecture, so how many people would attend? Say, uh, for example, when I was in Canada, twenty thousand attended. But when I write uh, on uh, my uh, Facebook, I have eight million people. Right. <laughs> when I write on my uh, Twitter, I have uh, ten million people. So. Can they stop that? So nobody can stop or ban ideas. So that is the reason I am banned in, in Western countries. Now, in the Arab world, I'm also banned in many countries. I am banned from Saudi Arabia, including to go to Hajj and Umrah. And this is for more than 10 years now. 
Uh, I'm banned from Emirates and Bahrain and Egypt and Jordan and many others uh, because of my very strong stand against the coup on Egypt. All of this, uh, all of this happened in 2013 when the coup in Egypt happened, and I took a very strong stand against it. So, uh, so this, these are the reasons. So, why am I banned? Uh, I am banned because I am against injustice. And I am very proud of this ban. I, I, I consider this as a medal to me that, alhamdulillah, they will witness on the day of judgment that I have stood against injustice in Palestine and against injustice in Egypt and against, I will stand against injustice in the whole world. Dr. Steph, I, am, I will stand against injustice even if it is done by an Islamic state against a Jew, I will stand against that. Because we, as a religion, are based on justice. And then, this justice is what leads us to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this is why isn't I'm this, Isn't this part of Islam, Sheikh? Isn't this part it of is, Islam? It is it one is. of, there are three major, three major goals of Islam. Tawheed, oneness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, justice, and mercy. These are the pillars. Maqasud al-Sharia, the goals of Sharia, are a level under that. These are the maqasid of maqasid al-Sharia. So these are the highest level of goals of Islam. So justice to us, if we lose the stand with justice, then we have lost our Islam itself. Yeah. SubhanAllah. Well, I can just sign what you just said. I mean, SubhanAllah, where would we be as Muslims? And we can see it in our past. We can see it in our history. We can see that Islamic history is filled of uh, people, of Muslims, who have gone against unjust systems, unjust people, unjust situations. So what would we do? And of course, leave alone our best example, the best human on this planet, Rasulullah who has given us actually exactly this stance. So subhanAllah, may Allah make it easy for you and your family. I yeah, mean, I mean, I mean, you too, you too. Yeah. SubhanAllah, no. No, no, these, these are things that have to be mentioned, very important, because people say, listen, there's something wrong with this man. There's something, there's a problem. You guys have a problem because you open your mouth. Yes, we do open our mouth. Yes, but just there where it's supposed to be open. If you don't open your mouth, you always close your mouth. What's going to happen? Everybody's going to be quiet. Everybody's going to follow the flow. And what's happening now, we see what's going on in the West, especially when we follow the flow, right? Dr. This is Dr. Steph, uh, opening our mouth is not a choice. It is, it is an obligation. obligation. Yeah. The Prophet ﷺ told us that if we can change things with our power then you must do it if we cannot which we i cannot then change it with your voice if you cannot then you change it with your heart and he says and there is no level below that when it when you come to your iman so for a person like me who can write who can talk, who can have TV interviews and so on, and I can reach millions with my voice, it is haram 
for me to keep quiet. Let me, uh, since you are, uh, mashallah, a major scholar uh, and uh, you have many students, let me give an advice to your students. It is okay for a weak person to keep quiet because they are weak. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala have given them that choice. إِلَّا مَنْ أُكْرِهَا وَقَلْبُهُ مُطْمَئِنٌ بِالْإِيمَانِ Those who are oppressed and they cannot do anything about it and they can say, say even, they, say, they can say even kufr as long as their hearts is full with iman. Dr. Steph, this is for the weak. This is not for the scholars. This is not for the ones who can speak up. It is haram for such a person like me or you, or your students or mine. It is haram for them to keep quiet. It is, it is halal for those who are not role models. This is a major, major saying. The scholars have taught us that الرخص لا تجوز للقدوات Those who are role models are not allowed to take lenient stance. They have to take the, the real stand of justice. So it is not a choice, ya akhi. It is, it is haram, it is below faith to, to, to do anything else. Zakalah, very, very important words. Zakalah, really very, very important. Talking about education and talking about yes. uh, speaking up and telling the truth and, and going and looking into <laughs> the past and learning, taking lessons from the past. Have you seen our program, Al Muqaddima? You have. I know it's a rhetorical question. <laughs> yes, I have. <laughs> um, Al Muqaddima actually um, wants to use knowledge from the past written by somebody who was living in the 14th, 15th centuries, Ibn Khaldun, who was one of the biggest scholars, mashallah, without a doubt. Of course. Using his words, his wisdom, his knowledge, using his work, and try to understand what's happening around us. Try mm -hmm. to see that in many ways, there were a lot of things that he was right. We don't have to agree with everything he's saying, of course. We don't need to agree with everything. We cannot, of course. However, there are many things that I think if we understood the Muqaddimah by Ibn Khaldun a bit better, I think we as Muslims nowadays, we would understand also our current affairs, our situation as Muslims nowadays better. And I think as a Muslim living in the West, and as Muslims developing our education system in the West, our infrastructure in the West, I think Ibn Khaldun is an excellent person to give us advice and to take some tips from his book. This is what we're trying to do with the Muqaddimah, actually. You know, our Muqaddimah program that has been running for two years now, alhamdulillah, we yes, have had um, massive success all over the world, alhamdulillah, because it's an online program, of course. It can reach uh, people from Malaysia to, to Australia, from Canada to the UK. And alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. I mean, this is, is it also because it is taught in English. I don't know of any program, by the way, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't know of any program that would educate our Muslim youngsters, you know, people who are interested in, in, in Islam, as well as we spoke about the balanced approach, as well as education in the broader sense. 
Yes. Don't forget that Ibn Khaldun is considered in the West as being the father of sociology. Yes, he is. Amazing. I mean, this is something, these are titles given to Muslims in the past. The same like, for example, if you look at certain other Muslims, such as the rulers of the Ottoman Empire, if you look at Sultan Suleiman, Sultan Mehmed Fatih, if you mm -hmm. look at the titles that are given to them in the West, Mm -hmm. uh, 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 the magnificent. Yes. Okay. The magn These are not titles that were given by the Muslims. It was given by mm -hmm. the West. And yes, I think sure. this is an indicator, subhanAllah. This is an indicator for what kind of Muslims we have had in the past. I think this is very special for us and unique. And see, we, we both, mashallah, educate our audiences about Muslims in the past, about Islam in the past. We have to understand that things happened in the past as well that were not right. And we cannot justify everything, and we don't do that. However, we need to know that we should not have a naive approach to the past and just think everything was perfect in the past. And everybody, every Muslim ruler was ideal, and every Muslim in the past did everything right. And everything we do no, nowadays is happen. They right? haven't. So, <laughs> yes. Could you elaborate a little bit on this? Because there are, I have I have very often, I have students in my class who ask me, I am shocked by what you're telling me. I can't believe <laughs> that Muslims fought other Muslims, that there were one <laughs> caliphate next to another. <laughs> so very naive ideas. Yes. Uh, first of all, I would commend you really on choosing the name Al-Muqaddimah and uh, choosing this uh, the, uh, one of the greatest scholars in our history, Ibn Khaldun. I, I have... Um, I have done a series on all the major scholars of Islam, um, including Ibn Khaldun, and um, definitely each one of them has an impact on their time and also on our time. Uh, Ibn Sina, Farabi, Ibn Rushd, Al-Ghazali, and many others. Uh, uh, all of them are definitely far more advanced for their own generation, and they have impacted the the people who came in their time and after them, except Ibn Khaldun. Ibn Khaldun truly was very unique because he did not impact the people of his time. He and he did not even impact the people who lived immediately after his death. His effect came centuries later, one century and more later, including today. Ibn Khaldun was too advanced for his time. For his time. Yeah, absolutely. And, and his ideas are really unique and truly genius that if you, if the, the more I read Ibn Khaldun, the more I would understand our current situation. So again, congratulations on choosing this greatest scholar and uh, his uh, book, the Muqaddimah, is the founding corner of all of his work. So a beautiful work, Barakallah Feek, and excellent choice. Yes, definitely. Sorry, if I, I just wanted to present, actually, give you an idea as well as our audience, actually. If you take a yes. look at the website, Mukadima.com, yes. um, which uh, gives you a better idea of actually what we're doing. Uh, this is the man himself about the program that we offer, which is certificates as well as diplomas. 
And al-Mukaddimah that come, as I said, is not only a program that focuses on the Mukaddimah only, but takes out of the Mukaddimah a lot of uh, understandings and teachings. For example, the historiography aspect. What does history actually mean? What do we follow in history? How do we know that these sources are authentic or not authentic? If you look at um, the Muslim empires, the dynasties in the past, starting, of course, with the Sira of Rasulullah all the way to the Ottoman Empire, um, understanding the mistakes that happened in the past in order to not make them again nowadays or to understand why mistakes happen and that mistakes did happen. And, of course, the Sira itself, we're going to start in October with the Sira studies now, which actually is extremely important based on the life of our Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu of, 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 again, the most important human being on, on, in, in our lifetime. If we base our understanding and life on his life, subhanAllah, what can go wrong? And I think that um, this is extremely important, especially to our youngsters in the West. That's why we are trying. We're doing this in English. It's extremely important, I think, that people understand. <laughs> also non-Muslims, by the way. We, we invite non-Muslims as well. We want them to come, actually. And we want them to understand from an Islamic perspective what happened in the past. Not only the Orientalist perspective or the perspective that is mostly given in the media. So I really think that it's extremely important. And I would like to really... Thank you. Thank you for for the possibility that you gave us actually to present you the program and to have some feedback from your side. I mean, this is extremely valuable for us. Beautiful work. And I don't I don't know of any other program in uh, in the West or in English that mashallah and it does all of that. So uh, for being a pioneer on that. Uh, just a small note, on, since you mentioned Sira, Alhamdulillah, yani, this is one of the, uh, Alhamdulillah, yani, with all the books I've written, with all the projects I have done, the, the most beloved to me is the one that I am doing right now. I am finishing the uh, writing the Encyclopedia of Sira, which oh. is uh, has seven volumes um, uh, between 400 and 500 uh, pages each uh, yeah. all on the seerah of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam so uh, right now right now i'm uh, i'm uh, in uh, volume number 7 so it's almost this is this is this is a massive massive work of peace mashallah alhamdulillah i would love to read uh, i hope you're going to invite me over once to kuwait i really need to come and see you <laughs> you and have I a home need, you have a home need, in kuwait yeah. <laughs> i mean, I, mean <laughs> I need to take uh, some of your time uh, my, me and my family will be most honored there. Barakallahu feek. Okay, uh, back to your question on on uh, the shortcomings of Islamic history. Let me. Uh, I I love analogies. Uh, one of the reasons is that, uh, as I mentioned, my background is I have a PhD in petroleum engineering, and my uh, my dissertation was on computer simulation of oil fields. So what we do is we take an actual oil field and then we write uh, uh, equations that we turn into a computer program and we simulate that oil field by using computer uh, simulation. And then we decide where to dig and how deep, etc. So it, it saves a lot of money and it makes us understand the whole field much easier. So let's do this with Islamic history, <laughs> okay? So uh, let me um, let me compare uh, Islamic history 
to the stock market. Uh, and I, I, I you know the stock market. I, I have been, um, I, I was the vice uh, chairman of uh, three major companies in the stock market, one in uh, Kuwait, one in Malaysia, and one in uh, the US. So I worked on the Dow Jones and so on. So I, I know a little bit about that. So uh, how does the stock market move? The stock market moves all the time, up and down, continuously up and down. It never goes in a straight line up or a straight line down or even a curve. It goes wiggling all the time. So if you look at a day, you'll see a lot of movement. Now, if you take this and you look at the whole week, then you will see the wiggling, but it will look smaller. Mm. Now, if we look at the whole year, then the wiggling is still there, but it is moving in a curve. And it, But there is what we call a trend. The trend is up or down. Mm. Let's say, for example, in one of the years, I think it was uh, 1997 or so, in one day, the Dow Jones uh, lost 25% of its value in one day. And it is very well known in history, it's called the Black Monday. But many people don't know that if you have invested in the beginning of the year and you took your money out in the end of the year, you would have made 5%. Although that in the middle there was a sharp decline, but they went up again. And the whole trend was up 5%. That is uh, Islamic history. Wow, what an analogy. <laughs> okay. Islamic history after the Prophet وسلم, and really, really after Umar ibn al-Khattab and if, to be more exact, after the, the 10th year of the rule of Uthman ibn Affan. Uthman ruled 12 years. In the first 10 years, there was no trouble. And the trend was up. At the time of the Prophet and Abu Bakr and Umar, and the 10 years of Uthman, it was a sharp rocket-like going up and the expansion of islam in in geography also was that fast and then trouble happened between muslims so there was a decline definitely in the last two years of uh, the the time of sayyidna uthman in the five years of the rule of sayyidna ali continuous trouble he did not have one day of rest and all the trouble was between Muslims themselves. Three major rule, uh, three major wars he had. One with Aisha, the wife of the Prophet One with Muawiyah, the the founder of the Umayyads, and one with Al Khawarij in the Battle of Nahrawan. But these are the major ba battles. 
between them there were continuous battles. At these five years of Sayyidina Ali, who was one of the best rulers of Islam, by the way, an example of leadership, military, political, knowledge, judiciary, uh, poetry. Sayyidina Ali was amazing. But civilization almost stopped in his time because of these internal wars. So definitely we went down. And then up and down again. So to, to summarize it, if we take, if, if we stop looking at events and we start looking at curves, so we will look and we will find the curve like this, rocket life, uh, rocket like in the first periods, as I mentioned. And then there was some declines, but we recovered and we continued up, but not to the same angle. We continued up, but the curve was not as sharp. That is the time of the Umayyads. We continued even up and the, the production of Islamic knowledge in physics, in, in astronomy, math, uh, etc., really, really did not come at the time of the Prophet or the Khulafa al-Rashidin or the whole Umayyad periods. It started at the Abbasi period. And a huge curve up, but not to the level of the time of the Prophet So that continued. And then, remember, up and down. And then came a lot of trouble between Muslims. The uh, Mughals came, the, the Crusaders came, and uh, we lost a lot, but we recovered again. And then the Ottomans came. And the Ottomans had two periods, two major periods. And uh, in the first period, by, by the way, I'm summarizing my, uh, uh, I, have a, I've, I have written the Encyclopedia of Islamic History. So, so I'm summarizing that. So in, in, in the Ottoman period, in the first part, the curve continued up, but not to the same level. And they made a major mistake. The mistake that they did was they emphasized on the military size, side of Islam. And knowledge side was really not advanced as in the Abbasid time. And they made another major mistake, and that is to try to conquer Europe, which was one, what was one, the, one of the greatest and most powerful countries in the world. And they tried to conquer it only by force. While the whole East, Malaysia, Indonesia, etc., was conquered without raising one sword. 700 years of wars with Europe. And it was a failure. We did not take over. While in Malaysia and the East and so on, we, this whole area became Muslims and they have the, the, the highest number of Muslims and without any wars. That was a huge mistake by the, the, by the Ottomans. 
to, to depend on military. Military is important, but not the most important. And then we reached the peak and we stopped. And the decline started after that. That peak happened in, in the year 998 of Hijrah, which is the third siege of Vienna by the Ottomans. The Ottomans tried to, tried to take over Austria, but they couldn't. And they sieged Vienna three times. So after the third siege of Vienna, from that point, we started going down, even military wise. That would be the 17th of century, 17th yeah. century C, right? Yeah. Uh, no, uh, I think it was closer to uh, 16th or 15th century. 1683, that's the 17th century. Yeah, yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, so they the, that uh, remember, during that time, we were up and down. Even when we're weak, we were up and down all the time. I'm talking about a trend. We reached the bottom in 1967 when we lost Jerusalem. Yeah, yeah. From that point, we started going up again, by the way. When Islam, Islamic revival happened, before that, there was Islamic revival that it was isolated here and there. After that, and I lived before that period, I've known what happened, and I lived after that. I, by the way, I visited Jerusalem in 1964 when it was in the hands of Muslims. Uh, so I prayed in Al-Aqsa. Alhamdulillah, mashallah. Alhamdulillah. But I have seen also what happened after that. A yeah. huge revival from the east to the west, from America, the Muslims in minority, uh, yeah. living in minority in America, to Australia, all the way. There is revival everywhere. That did not happen for 400 centuries after. So, saying that, now back to your students that you mentioned, and some of those who are astonished. There are two major mistakes happen when we try to analyze history. I can easily, wallahi, I can easily write a book and show you the history of Islam that is very beautiful, very pure, etc. by looking at the ups only. And I can write a book that shows how much injustice and cruel and savage Muslims were by looking at the downs of this. But that's not how you look at it's it. It's not the full truth. It's not the full truth. History is not judged by the actions of a person. It is a whole civilization, a whole community. And I do not agree at all. It is a clash of civilization. We have learned a lot, a lot. We have learned a lot from the Greek and the Romans and the Persians and the Indian Indians. And we, uh, we have learned a lot and we have taught a lot to the whole world. Islam doesn't stand alone. It is part of human civilization with interaction between civilizations, with, uh, with the complementation of each other. That is how we look at history. So I hope I have answered your question. 
Oh, Barakallahu Fiqh. Very clear, very clear. You know, based on this, what you just said with regards to the spread of Islam, we have seen that actually uh, the sort, as they say, they keep saying, especially in the West, especially in Europe, they say Islam was spread by the sword, they say. Okay. Uh, Many times I have these discussions that actually every time I have a a lecture or a talk about uh, Islam, Islamic history in Europe, especially. Uh, and we speak about Al-Andalus, for example, or we speak about the Ottoman Empire, we speak about the Tatars, mm. we speak about the Vikings, for example. Mm. Uh, when we look at Ibn Fadlan, by the way, who was an ambassador in the 10th century for the Abbasid Empire, he was yes. sent to Sweden. And he mm. left us behind the Risala, he left us behind the diary. In the diary, mm. he describes to us that he actually found Viking Muslims living in Viking villages in Sweden at that time, subhanAllah. Yeah, so there were Muslims living in Sweden in the 10th century. So mm-hmm. there was no Islam that was spread by the sword up there. Where did the yeah, sword go? <laughs> so they, 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 they like, as you just, mashallah, what you just said is very, very true because I can focus on everything that was bad and I can make it the worst phenomenon in the history of humanity. But yes. I can also focus on everything that's good and make it the best phenomenon. But the truth is in between. So now the whole issue of Islam was spread by the sword. How can yes. this be reconciled that actually the ones say no, it's everything was great, but the other ones say everything was bad and everything was spread by the sword. How can we reconcile that? How can we explain to our people in general, not only Muslims, but also non-Muslims, that uh, Islam spread so quickly because of Islam being what it is? Yes. Um, how can we, you know, give you a little bit okay. of this one, especially now in Europe, yes. To understand Islam, we have to understand the Quran. There's no other way. Even the life of the Prophet is the the, the application of the Quran. Quran, So if we do not look at the Quran, if we do not understand the Quran, if we don't analyze the Quran, then we would not understand history. Let's look at the Quran on the matter of wars and fighting and jihad and so on you will continuously say continuously that whenever jihad is mentioned it is in relationship to to defense always this is what the quran teaches us except in one situation so muslims fought for defense and that is the right of muslims and that is the right of any person in history today or in the future being a muslim or not i said except in one verse in the quran that says wama lakum alla tuqatilu fi sabilillah wal mustadhafin why don't how come that you do not fight for the sake of Allah and the oppressed? It is a very clear verse that we Muslims, we are not in charge of defending Muslims and Islam. Mm -hmm. We Mm -hmm. are in charge. We are appointed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and our conscience to defend every 
oppressed person, no matter what religion they are in. That is our mission. The Persians lived under the Sassanite dictatorship for 1,000 years. They had no choice. They were abused, oppressed in every kind of oppression. The people in the West and the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire had three three capitals, not one. One in Constantinople, which is Istanbul today. The other one, which ruled the East, and that is in Damascus. And the third one, which ruled the whole of North Africa, was in Alexandria. So the Romans were Romans who came from Rome. And they took over all of these areas. Anyway, so when Muslims came into Syria and surroundings, and they took it from the hands of the Romans, who oppressed those who lived in these areas, including and especially the Jews, were so much oppressed under the Romans. But let me give a very clear example. The number of people living in Egypt at the time of the Islamic conquer of Egypt, which was on the 18th year of Hijrah, done by Amr ibn al-As, the number of, of men who were able to fight living in Egypt at that time was one million people. At the time, by the way, the Arabs did not know the, the word million. So the, it is written in our books, 1,000, 1,000. So it, it, is, it is narrated exactly. Huh? And that is not an estimate that is done by a historian. It was a, a census that was ordered by Amr ibn al-As himself. Uh -huh. So a million people living in Egypt, oppressed by the Romans. How many Muslims were in the army that took over Egypt? Go back to the any book of history. You will see that the first army led by Amr ibn al-As himself was only 4,000 men. Only 4,000. And then he wrote to Sayyidina Umar, that he said, that's not enough. So he sent him another army to be under his leadership. And this new army was only 4,000 again. So the whole army was 8,000. 8,000. How can 8,000 take over and conquer 1 million? Yeah. The reason is very simple. The Egyptians welcomed them, That's supported right. them, helped them. The conquer of Egypt by Muslims was not done by Amr ibn al-As and his army. It was by the support of the Egyptians 
Who will roll? Isn't this the same with Alandalus? The same with Alandalus, subhanAllah. Al I, need to I, I have written a whole book on the details of the history of Alandalus before Islam, all the way to the time after Muslims left. There was a king who took over the Iberian Peninsula, which they called. Al-Andalus at that time, and this king had killed and oppressed the rulers before him who fled from Spain to Morocco, and they have urged Muslims to come and support them to take the kingdom back. Muslims agreed on two things. They said, we will help you on, on the, the, the following two major conditions. The first condition is that whatever this king before the dictator owned and his children owned will be given back to them. And, they, and that was given back to them. The second condition is that if we help you, then we will rule, not you. And they welcomed them, welcomed them because everyone talked about how just Muslims were and how how much yeah. freedom of religion and uh, yeah. life were under Muslims. No doubt. So that is clear defense and clear support of the oppressed. SubhanAllah. In that case, I remember I was in Spain just some months ago again, the last time that I was in, in Andalusia, and I went to Granada and Cordoba. And I spoke mm -hmm. to several people there. I did some tours. And I remember yes. that even the Spanish, non-Muslim, Catholics, Christians, atheists, whatever they are, even they yes. cannot deny this fact. They cannot deny the fact that the Muslims actually did not come as oppressors. They did not come to conquer, but they rather opened. And they rather actually helped the people, the Iberian people, who were rather suppressed by the Gothic people. But the Germanic yes. people before. This is That's extremely right. important to understand that. Yes, subhanAllah. This is exactly uh, this is I have I've, I have read a book, a Jewish book, written by yeah. a Jew. To the yeah. uh, it was not in Arabic, it was in, in, in English, and yeah. it is written not for Muslims, it was written in a history book. And it's written by a Jew. And I, I've taken one sentence out of this and I've I put it in my book, in uh, my encyclopedia of history. It says the following, the golden period that the Jews lived throughout their history, anywhere in the world, was under the Muslim rule of Spain. Better than their rule in the East or the West or Europe itself. So this is this is a Europe. this is what is different. Oh, no, what, no. This is the simple simple that's, idea that's of jihad. That's right. right. That's right. Anti-Semitism is an invention by the West, by Europe, and not by the Muslims, because that's they that's nowadays that's have turned it around. I have to say something about this. <laughs> I have to say something. What yeah, is please, Semitism? Please, please, please. Yes. What is what is Semitism? Semitism are the children of. Ibrahim, the descendants of Ibrahim, the descendants of Ibrahim 
are Isaac and Ishmael, among others. The Jews came from Isaac. The Arabs came from Ismail. Ishmael. I am a descendant of Ishmael. I am Semitic as much as they are. So they cannot call me anti-Semitist. <laughs> I am Semitist as much as they are. <laughs> yeah, you know, this is, I think now, they don't, the, the point with this one, Sheikh, is I think they don't care. They don't care anymore what the facts are. They don't care. Yes. It doesn't matter. You know, how many times have I spoken to my compatriots in Greece and I've told them, listen, you know that what you're talking about when you talk about the Ottoman Empire and the peninsula, the Greek, Greek peninsula, for example, or the Balkan peninsula, that not all of the things that you say are true. Most of them actually lie. They say, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> we know. Honestly, I tell yeah. you, there are two. I, I, there is a very nice documentary. 1821 mm -hmm. it's called, that was the time of revolution in Greece, when mm -hmm. two professors, one from the University of Athens and one from the University of Thessaloniki, they speak in this documentary and they say, we invented these lies in <laughs> order to create nationalism for our young children in primary school. You know what? This is a quote. They say that. I don't say that. They say that. SubhanAllah. And uh, doctor, doctor, to be, to be very clear, and to be very objective, there is nothing called anti-Semitism today. It is anti-Israel. Yes. Anti it is not anti-Semitism. Yeah. So <laughs> they, they try to play with words and yeah. redefine history yes. and redefine language to make something untrue the rule of today. So uh, it's not anti-Semitism. It's, it's being anti, anti the injustice of Israel. That's what we are against. Absolutely, subhanAllah. What do you think now? I mean, having looked at the golden time of the Muslims and the Jews under Islam, um, mm -hmm. all this, do you think there is a future for us? I mean, how should we Muslims look to the future? Will we see such a golden time again? Will it be something that we can look up to and be proud of being Muslims? Because nowadays you see youngsters who are actually, they are not proud of being Muslims. They are ashamed of being Muslims. Uh, again, this, has, this is not new. Uh, let me say something before I, I answer this. Sure. We are not in the darkest period of our history. No. We are not. Muslims have seen darker periods in their life. When the Crusaders took over what it was a dark time for Muslims. When the Mughals, Mongols, yeah. Mongols took over, it was a very dark for us. Yeah. When the, the, uh, the uh, uh, requisition or what they call it in Spain happened then it was a very dark period of, for Muslims. Today, we are not living in such a dark period. So please don't, don't look at it as it is the end of the world and we are at the bottom and so we are not. Second, if we want to, to, to look at the future, then we can take uh, a forecasting. And uh, this is something that I... I I do because I, I am a strategic planner. I, I've written stra 70 strategic plans. 
So I, I know a little bit about forecasting. So we can look at it from this point of view, or we can take a look at it from the poet, uh, the prophetic point of view. So let me start with the, the first one. The first one is a forecast of the future. Muslims are advancing, advancing a lot. Today, I, I follow, I've, I try to follow the Global Competitiveness Report, which is the most important comparison of countries in the whole world. And it compares countries according to 12 standards, and then it gives ranking of countries. Mm. And yes, most, many country, Muslim countries are in, in the worst situation. But if we look at the trend again, from one year to another, what is happening? Dr. Steph, I have followed this report for about now close to 20 years. Many people don't know the following. Today, as I stand, many Muslim countries are better than Israel in eight out of 12 indices. Mashallah, okay. Already, huh? already today. Huh? Let's take, for example, education. Qatar today is number four, not among Muslims or Arab countries. It is the number four country in education in the whole world. Allah Akbar. And I can give you examples of infrastructure, um, uh, 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 many, many areas. There are certain areas that they are more advanced from us. Scientific research is one of them, which gives them a lot of advantage in yeah. providing, especially on um, military uh, advancements, which gives them power. But that is temporary, because what is more important than scientific research is education that will, in the future, determine your level of scientific research. And I'm talking about higher education and general education. In both, we are more advanced. And I can give many examples in, in economics and so on. So uh, Muslims are advancing. Saying that, we still have a major, major problem. And that is in the political arena. We are ruled in general by corrupt dictators. Unfortunately, people look at that as the only standard. Many of our youngsters look at that as the standard. It is not the only standard. Singapore is among the most advanced countries in the world. Singapore, although it is a republic and although it is um, a democracy, but it is really, really a dictatorship. But it became very advanced. So you do not look only at the political arena. 
Yeah. You have to look at the whole spectrum. Now, where does change come from? Change can come from the top, which is easier and quicker. But in our case, it did not come. It is not coming from the top. It is really coming from the masses, from the people, from, um, from uh, our scholars. Let me summarize with a small lesson of history. We, we all talk about Salahuddin and how he saved us from the Crusaders and liberated Al-Quds. But many people don't look at deeper than that. Where did this man come from? Did he, did he come from the sky? He did not. He was trained by a greater man than Salahuddin. I have no doubt that Nuruddin Zanki was greater than Salahuddin. And he educated and trained Salahuddin. Now, where did this Nuruddin come from? He came from Imaduddin Zanki. Wait, where did Imaduddin Zanki come from? Imaduddin Zanki came from a man called Madud. And by the way, all of these were not Arabs. All of them were great, great Muslims who led Islam and Muslims, and they were Kurds. Kurds are among the best who supported Islam in history. And then where did this Madud come from? Where did his, his idea of revival and stopping the 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 occupiers and uh, declaring jihad against them stop the decline madud is the one the first one who stopped the decline where did he come from many people don't understand these people did not come from vacuum madud and imaduddin both of them were educated by the students of al-imam al-ghazali and al-imam al-tartushi so where does revival come from? Revival come, comes from ideas and ideology and scholars. That's the start. And then it ends with politics and military, not vice versa. Not vice versa. Yeah. So that's how, how we understand it. So that's how important al-muqaddimah and what you're doing is and especially, especially, I want to really, again, to commend you on, on a great work. Alhamdulillah, we have many Muslim schools and universities and Islamic knowledge, Islamic institutes here. There are very, very few in the West. But saying that, let me say something else. Yeah, I have, alhamdulillah, trained 100,000. And I work a lot with the youth, a lot. And in each year, alhamdulillah, my average, is that I train youth from about 30 countries every year. Wallahi akhi. And my teacher, Dr. Steph, the best among my students are those who come from the West. No question to me. These who are educated in the West are the best of my students because they were able to combine the advancement mm. of the West mm. and their education 
and their training, and their, uh, they, they are trained on, on time management, they are trained on uh, uh, leadership and management and entrepreneurship and so, and so on. They are well trained. And at the same time, they are taking from you and people similar to you, mashallah, great moderate Islamic knowledge. They, this combination is the most powerful. So our students who are from the East, alhamdulillah, they're alhamdulillah, well-educated, but not to the level of your students. So let me say something that I, wallahi, I truly, truly believe that the best who can contribute to the advancement of our future Islamic civilization are those who come from Islamic background who live in the West. Allahu Akbar. Allahu Akbar. Allah. You know... So that's how, how important your work is, Jazakallah. Jazakallah. I mean, I, what can I say? I'm very humbled. I, um, I, I really think that... Um, it has been, I hope Allah will give us once the chance yeah. to meet face to face. And Inshallah. to exchange this extremely important, yes, these extremely important things that we're, we're exchanging ideas. I can't, I really, I can't believe to be very honest, sir, Sheikh. I have met a lot of Arab scholars and I've met a lot of scholars coming from the East who I really respect a lot, but none of them has given me clear clarity in the ideas that you just gave finally that you said you're absolutely right i believe that for example i remember how a brother told me once he said i have traveled around the world and i have met muslims all over the world shall i tell you the muslims who really made an impression on me japanese muslims he says <laughs> japanese <laughs> muslims why because they got all these order is in and you know a japanese society i think we all know that japanese mm -hmm. society is amazing the japanese yes, people have now shown us in qatar again how they behave how well behaved they are how yes. men are there this all and then they become muslim allah akbar this is the best muslim in the world <laughs> that's true that's true <laughs> allah akbar this these are great great things you know and it's 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 it's, it's something that we need to learn from each other we can learn nowadays nowadays i think we have come to the point to look and find Muslims all over the world in any society of the world who can revive, and that's what we both want. We want to revive Islamic civilization. And we can really do that with these people. I also personally believe, mashallah, and this is why I'm 100% standing behind my programs, behind my, my, my whatever we've built up until now, I stand behind it and say we can revive Islamic civilization. Yes, and I think yes. we can revive it in the West and in countries that are actually not Islamic, uh, originally Islamic. So countries such as Japan, countries such as South Korea, countries such as the UK, countries such as Sweden. These are countries in the US, Canada. These are countries where we can really move a lot and do a lot. With, of course, of course, we will have to deal with a lot of backlash. That's normal. That's normal. That's normal. Yes. That's absolutely normal. But resilience is where it comes into the game now. We have to become more resilient. We have to stop thinking uh, in a very naive manner. And we have to start really becoming um, learning, taking lessons from the past, subhanAllah. 
And I think we have made a super start, a very good start here. And I'm hoping that maybe, inshallah, in the future, we will have another chance again to uh, maybe, you know, get on some more ideas and, and see how we can really inspire and motivate our people in general in the world. It will But, be my honor to, to, to meet you and learn from you, Dr. Steph. No, no, no. We learn from each other. Never just one. Never. <laughs> We learn from each other. You know, absolutely. It, it was an honor and a, the biggest pleasure and honor ever, alhamdulillah. But Doctor, Allah, I would like to too, really too. stay in touch with you. I really would like to stay in touch with you. And inshallah, have me a, too, a, me future, too. a future, future perspective, inshallah, to look into something like that again. But Jazakallah. Uh, thank you so much for, for giving me the platform to reach to, them, uh, to uh, يعني, the Muslims in the whole world and in the West especially. And inshallah, يعني, we will have uh, more opportunities to exchange ideas and inshallah support our students to be the leaders of the Islamic civilization that is coming very soon, inshallah. Amen, amen, inshallah, absolutely. Zakallah, assalamu alaikum. Barakallahu biik, alaikum assalam, rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. For nearly seven centuries, Ibn Khaldun's Muqaddimah has been read and studied by scholars and students of history, sociology, politics and economics as the single most authoritative and astounding work of classical scholarship in the field of history. Now and for the very first time, general audiences have the unique and unprecedented opportunity to delve into the topics and intellectual concepts outlined in this most amazing book, which is facilitated by modern and professional learning cues including animations, audiovisual resources, formats and various other forms of media which are embedded into this unique course. The Muqaddimah Primer comes with over 40 individual pre-recorded lessons which students can watch in their own time, whether on a laptop computer or through their mobile phone device. Ibn Khaldun's Muqaddimah has been publicly quoted by a great number of prominent politicians during interviews and speeches. But it does not have to be restricted to senior academics and powerful individuals only because the Muqaddimah has something to offer to everyone. More importantly, it serves as a foundation and a point of commencement for lifelong learning and development in the fields of Islamic history, sociology, economics and culture. So, if you love Islamic history and you are looking to develop your understanding of the core principles, means and methods, then the Muqaddimah Prama is the best place to begin your journey. On behalf of myself and of the Muqaddimah staff, welcome to the world of Islamic history. The time is now.